If you've ever thought of quilting your own projects but just don't know where to start, I have the perfect first steps for you. I've put together a PDF guide. I call it Three Steps Toward Freehand Freedom. These are the baby steps, but they can help you move past your overwhelm and show you that yes indeed, freehand quilting can be learned. So if you'd like to snag this PDF, there's a link in the show notes, or if you're an Instagram user, just message me three steps. That's the number three, S-T-E-P-S, and I'll send you that link. Let today be the day you get started. I think that the community is a really important part of um, being a filter, especially for me. Having a critique group is something that is really common um, in certain circles of quilters um, and certainly in the art world. Welcome to Measure Twice, Cut Once, the podcast where we hear quilters and other crafters' stories and draw encouragement and even life lessons from them. Today's guest is Audrey Essery. I'm your host, Susan Smith, and I'm coming to you from my quilting studio, Stitched by Susan. This is where my long arm, Lucy, and I spend lots of hours doing freehand, edge-to-edge quilting. And if you're not a quilter and those terms mean nothing to you, it's basically doodling on the surface of a quilt with a 50-pound writing utensil with needle and thread attached at high speed. And if you are a machine quilter, I invite you to tune in to the live and unscripted events that I host on my YouTube channel, also called Stitched by Susan. They're on the first and third Friday of every month, and they are usually one project from start to finish in real time, and they're streamed live, so they're interactive, meaning you can ask questions and get answers about a project while I'm working on it. So I invite you to join me there again the first and third Friday of every month. The quilting community, as I'm sure you already know, is so diverse, so colorful, and supportive. So I invite you to listen in as we meet a new quilter each week and hear their stories. Today's Pins and Needles is brought to you by The Will and Dave Show. Hi, I'm the Will half of The Will and Dave Show, a short little podcast that myself and the eponymous Dave like to record talking about things that really matter to us whether that's social political or pop culture usually we don't see eye to eye but more often than not we can find some common ground in there somewhere and now back to pins and needles with a quick tip for all you sharp quilters out there in my visit with audrey today she's going to talk a little bit about the art of exploring and expanding your horizons and in the spirit of that i want to challenge you to play around a little bit with straight line quilting This is often thought of as too simplistic or maybe too difficult or too boring, but in fact it can be really, really effective for finishing a quilt. It tends to not conflict with colors or with piecing, and it just takes a nice background seat but adds texture. So a couple of my favorite ways to do straight line quilting across an entire quilt are these. If you want a quite soft quilt, space your lines about an inch apart and it will remain extremely soft and flexible. For a bit more dramatic look, try lines that are a little less than half an inch, about three-eighths of an inch. Across a whole quilt, that will provide such an incredible level of pettable texture. You'll just love it. And then lastly, maybe more surprising, irregularly spaced lines 
can be super effective as well. So these range from quarter inch or even an eighth of an inch all the way up to about one and a half. And so, you know, just maybe one and a half and then half and then three quarters and then three eighths. And that, and just very irregular and very random. And that can produce a really great texture as well. So have fun with straight line quilting. You know I love my coffee. In fact, I've got a fresh pot brewing right now. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, you can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash stitched by Susan. There for the price of one delicious coffee, you are able to make a one-time contribution or sign up for a monthly one if you so desire. Thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate it. And maybe take a moment now to refill your cup as you settle back to enjoy today's interview. Audrey Essery is an artist, no doubt about it. Her quilts are graphic, highly original, layered in interest and details, and, well, just a feast for the eyes. Let's welcome her. Hi, Audrey, and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this with great anticipation. Scrolling through your feeds, I've been watching you entering some shows, uh, some um, some of your quilts in quilt shows and coming home with some accolades. And it's just so exciting to see all that happening. But maybe tell us a little more about your be- your beginnings, how you kind of got into the quilting world. Um, well, I had sewn my whole life ever since I was a little kid. I remember sitting on my mom's lap and sewing. Um, but when I started quilting, it was actually thanks to an invitation from my mother-in-law. Um, I wasn't married yet, so it was my future mother-in-law. Gotcha. But um, she extended what I think was a courtesy invite um, just to attend a quilting class that a couple other family members were going to. And so I think I surprised her by saying, actually, I'd love to take a quilting class um, because I had done so much sewing. And I think it surprised her. And now of all the people who took the class, I'm the only one that is still quilting. So that's a really nice connection point that I have now between uh, my mother-in-law. That is very nice. And what kind of quilt did you make? Um, The class was for a hunter star pattern. So an intermediate pattern. Um, The pattern was by Jan Krenz. And I had a very patient teacher at the local quilt shop because I showed up for the class not knowing anything about quilting. And I very quickly was uh, tutored on a quarter inch seam and how to use a rotary cutter and all of those good things. But still, your your foundation with familiarity with the sewing machine would certainly stand you in good stead there. So Yes, it was really helpful to know the ins and outs of my sewing machine. I just didn't know anything about um, any of the technical aspects of quilting. Right. So your style these days is is quite modern, quite graphic, and we'll talk about that a little more later. But I'm curious... Like, how did that kind of growth or exploration happen for you? You know, a hunter star is a quite traditional pattern, often made with printed fabrics. You know, what did what did the stages of that exploration and growth look like for you? Well, when I first started quilting in 2005, I was really most focused on um, learning everything that I could. And so I took a class 
on foundation paper piecing. I took a class on curve piecing. I took a class to uh, learn how to sew a curve. Um, I, I just, I really invested a lot of time in learning all of the different techniques that I could to kind of build my individual skill sets. And um, so I think that's really wisdom because actually- how, like, how do you know what you like, what you'll enjoy unless you try something? Foundation paper piecing, for example. I tried a example. lot of things on for size. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. For sure. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. And um, so I definitely can admit that I'm not a talented applicator. It's never something that I felt uh, very comfortable with. Either um, really a lot of handwork has has been something that I've avoided um, in continuing to develop uh, skills with because I enjoy the precision of foundation paper piecing so much. Um, and once I started sewing curves, I really enjoyed that. Um, and I actually ended up teaching some classes at the local cult shop. Um, and then I took about a five-year break um, from quilting. I just uh, just kind of needed to... Um, I needed to take a break because the patterns that I was seeing, I wasn't finding them to be something that I wanted to invest time in making. And I didn't have my own design aesthetic at all. And so I just kind of paused. And I think that's really natural and cyclical for uh, someone to have um, an artistic practice or a hobby that they really enjoy and then they need to take a little break from. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why I actually picked it back up was because I found out that QuiltCon, um, the modern quilt show, was going to be in Nashville the following year. And I thought, well, that's only three hours south of where I live, so perhaps I should go. <laughs> and then I thought, well, if I'm going to go, maybe I should enter a quilt. Maybe. Um, and so I started to read about the types of quilts that are accepted into the show. And really, there being such a strong preference for individual design um, and original design. And so I just started sketching and trying to figure out what is my (laughs) style, because I really didn't have one. Um, And I made four distinctly different pieces. um, And of those two, two were accepted and two were not. And one of them ended up traveling with the best of QuiltCon that year. And I came home and I thought, well, people seem to really like that quilt. A lot of people were talking to me about it and I got to travel in the show. And so I thought maybe I should make more quilts that kind of have that same kind of vibe or Mm -hmm. uh, design. And that was the quilt offset. And now my radial quilt series is based off of that. And I think I'm on number 14 or 15 (laughs) now in that series several years later. So that's kind of uh, a little bit about how I found part of my design aesthetic in a series that I'm continuing to work in. Mm-hmm. That's a great description. And I think I think you're absolutely right. People who are artistic need that time to explore. And there's, there's cycles, cycles to create, cycles to just get the job done, cycles for whatever. But in your example... I can see that. Like I scrolled actually all the way back to the beginning of your Instagram feed. Oh boy. Because just that <laughs> buzzing, just that quick 
brush over just gives me such a feel for your work. And you could just see the moment. And it was about the Nashville time. And I hadn't heard this story when I just started to see you refining that and honing in on it. And now your designs, you know, I could pick them out in a quilt show. I could say that's an Audrey right there. So well done. I'm actually really flattered to hear that because I think that many quilters have a strong desire to find their own design aesthetic. And I don't think that it's natural to sit down one day and think, I'm going to make things that look like this. <laughs> and I agree. I think, you know, that's kind of a little bit of a dream come true that people are um, able to pick my, like, my work out of a lineup because um, I've really enjoyed working in that series for that reason. Um, to just see all the different ways that I can explore a circle of radiating wedges, high contrast designs, and um, starting to incorporate color and different ways to manipulate that shape where it still feels a lot like me, but has um, some unique aspects. Absolutely. And each piece is unique, but they still speak of you. I, I, I'm serious. Take the compliment. I would recognize your work Thank in a quilt you. show. Absolutely. And I just, I look forward to seeing in the years to come how how that might change. Like if another shape all of a sudden speaks to you, you know, this is very circular <laughs> in design. It'll just be interesting to see how that happens. I'm curious, do you have any quilting studio pets? This seems to be a theme among quilters, having a pet in their studio. I do have a dog. Her name is Pippa. She's a 12-pound mini dachshund. She is about a year and a half old, so she cannot be trusted in the studio yet. Um, so my studio is located in the basement of my home, and so she spends time upstairs while I sew downstairs. Um, however, I do have a sewing machine on my dining room table right now. <laughs> so in the... Don't we um, all? times that I can't make it downstairs, but I want to do a little piecing. Um, you know, I can hang out upstairs with her and uh, do some piecing. She is such a great dog. Um, and I think she will be a good studio dog, but she's still just a little too curious. And I'm just, I feel like I'm always looking around for her, like, where is she? <laughs> Worse than a toddler. It's, it's <laughs> right. funny how... I don't know why that is such a theme for quilters, but maybe because this is a bit of a solitary thing that we do. And also our sewing rooms are often either the spare bedroom or the garage bonus room or the basement, you know, and you're often away by yourself. And there's just something about that pet. For me, I have yeah, a black no, cat I mean, and he's a very demanding supervisor. He's he's frightening. Um, I did when she was a puppy, I would bring her down to the studio and she would sit actually on my lap. And I would be able to sew over. Too, <laughs> over too top cute. Of her. Did you make any um, reels of that? <laughs> I, I did make a video of it. I'll ha you, you'll have to scroll back and see it. It was uh, okay. um, shortly after we got her in 2021. So I would check out like February 2021. There's a reel of her. I kind of panned the camera down and I show her sitting on my lap as I'm sewing. <laughs> Too fun. And actually, little side rabbit trail here, that is something I loved about your feed is your monthly markers. Because it does make it super convenient when you're scrolling through and you want to look for something at a quilt show or when the puppy came and you can easily date while scrolling through and not have to open up posts. So good idea. I might have to pinch that one. 
Thank you. Each of us can make our marker look like our own, you know. But That's right. <laughs> now, you quilt your own projects, right? I've seen you using a domestic machine, and do you also have a long arm? I do. I use both my domestic sewing machine and my long arm for quilting. So primarily my long arm is used for a lot of the straight line quilting. I use it with my channel locks to make sure I get really nice straight lines. Um, and then a lot of the spiral quilting or accent quilting that you see in my pieces is all done on my domestic sit down machine. Awesome. I'm so curious. I'm a, I'm a long arm quilter. I mean, I've worked on my domestic machine too, but not with the kind of precision you do. How how do you do that at your sit-down machine? Like, is it with, do you have a walking foot for a guide? Do you do pre-marking? How do you do such precise quilting as your pieces have? Um, well, the channel locks on my long arm help me a lot um, to get the um, straight lines uh, to be perfectly straight. So I understand um, that one. And for our listeners who yeah. maybe don't know, certain long arm brands and, and models have <clears throat> magnetic locks. And what that does is locks the wheels of the long arm in place so that it flows smoothly and can't deviate from a perfectly straight line. So that's a really helpful tool. But of course, on your domestic yes. machine, you can't lock it into place the same way. Right. So once the, I always start with my straight lines and then once all the layers are connected together with straight lines, then I'll go over the top of that with accent quilting. Ah, um, okay. So it's kind of an embellishment or additional layer to the design. Okay. I follow. Yes. And the accent quilting that I do on my domestic sit down machine, um, a lot of times because my straight line quilting is so dense, my piece is already, um, it's not it's way better than basting it's stitched together i mean those layers are not moving anywhere so at that point a walking foot really isn't necessary because those layers aren't going to be shifting or separating at Got all it. um when i mark the quilts i use tools from the hardware store like a laser level and then i um like use the laser level to make sure the line is perfectly straight and then i mark it with a masking tape or a painter's tape and then I'll use my stitch in the ditch foot to stitch right next to the tape um, for, you know, in a piece that has a really long <laughs> seam. Right. I'll, you know, mark it with the tape, take it over to my sewing machine and stitch that one line and then put it back on the design wall, get the laser level out, get a perfectly straight line, readjust the tape and then back to my sewing machine. So the accent quilting, it's special and it takes a long time, but it also, um, I take the care to make sure that um, things are marked appropriately because I don't like to rip anything out. Mm -hmm. I like to sew things once. <laughs> and and that quilting is so integral to the artistry of your pieces. So yeah, it, your care shows through in all of that for sure. Thank you. Thank you. So let's talk fabric dyeing for a minute. You do this in sure. a big, big, big way, and I know nothing about it. So so tell me why, first off, one would want to do that, and then maybe tell us a bit about the process. Okay. Um, well, the reason why is because um, commercially available solids don't come in all hues. Um, there are uh, color gradations or moving on the value scale from a very light fabric to a very dark fabric in the same um, tone is often not something that's available from a 
commercially available fabric. And the reason um, really why I started dyeing is because I wanted to achieve those fabric gradations and have kind of the perfect transition of um, light to dark within one color family. Um, and it's so just if not you're picking practical. one particular sky blue, for example, and you want 10 shades of sky blue from very, very pale to very, very rich. That's where that right. comes in handy. Okay, got it. Exactly. Um, and it's so much more than just the hue. Also, that's something that is achieved, but also um, the texture of the fabric, you can get a little bit of texture, which adds depth to the pieces and just a little bit of movement. Um, there, when you use the dyes, the colors can kind of break apart and you can get um, some variation in your piece. And so it adds a lot of visual interest. So it's not um, absolutely a solid blue, using my example exactly. again. Okay, got it. Um, right. I hand dyes and commercial available solids together in the same quilts. So you'll find many times that my white is a Kona snow, my black is a Kona black, and then the colors that are within the quilt, the other colors are hand dyed. Um, so in my recent piece that won a ribbon at Paducah, the AQS show, um, I was using Kona Snow and Kona Black, but I had also a hand-dyed magenta and a hand-dyed chartreuse that were accents in that piece. Um, and so it, it's just a way to um, make sure you're getting the color that you want. It's a great way to experiment. Um, it's just really fun <laughs> to be I honest, would, to be like, I made that fabric. You, know? you make me want to try it just because I would love to have all those shades and hues to experiment with because how else can one do that how else can one have all those shades of blue and in a number of your quilt examples you have um what's the word i want layering right so it looks like two different colors are side by side and then there's an area where it looks like they cross over each other oh a transparency a transparency yeah. that's the word i wanted how do you even start knowing, I mean, there's the obvious, a blue and a yellow make a green. But if you've got a magenta and a, I don't know, peach, how do you know what color to pick that they would, that looks like a transparency and it's so natural looking? Well, there are a couple of tools that you can use just to experiment. There's actually a color mixing guide that is primarily used for painters. It's a chart that's used where there's a color running down the side and a color along the bottom. And you can kind of um, bring those two together and see if you are mixing paint, what color would it produce? Okay. Um, so that's one tool that can be used. Um, also, uh, Adobe Illustrator is a great tool that you can use. I can pop a color in two shapes and put them at 50% transparency and overlap them and see what color would that produce. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, I think that you would find that you're going to get a lot of browns and grays where you don't mm -hmm. really expect them. And that's where um, with uh, fabric dyeing, you can more target uh, depending on your resources and the classes and things that you've taken, you can target specific colors that definitely wouldn't be available in commercially available solids because they're not really pretty colors, um, as some would consider. Um, I took a 
class called Color Mixing for Dyers that was taught by Carol Sutherland um, last fall. And I left with a book that had over a thousand uh, swatches in it so that I can more easily now target I want that color to look like this. And then, you know, I can start to get to work at <laughs> replicating that color. But I have information that can guide me that direction, um, thanks to that class from Carol. Um, and then I'll also say sometimes um, in one of my recent watercolor eclipse quilts, um, I did a color selection that was commercially available solids. Um, it was a mix of Modabella and Kona solids, and I went from like teal to army green with yellows in the middle. And the uh, colors that I put in the overlap slots are absolutely not the colors <laughs> that would have been created, but uh, the color value did me a lot of favors. And so um, I think your eye naturally completes a circle and completes that shape for you, uh, even if the color isn't what your eye tells you it should be from an actual that, color That does kind of make sense. But I can see where those tips give you like a springing off point, you know, to start at, and then you can experiment. And that's kind of what I, was in my mind when I was saying having all these naturally dyed colors available would help you to experiment to say, what would this one look like, you know, with those two, that kind of thing. I don't know right. if I made sense, but yeah. No, you did. I can and see there's it. also, you asked about the process too. I mean, there's lots of different ways that you can start dyeing fabrics. And I think that ice dyeing is a really popular way to start. Because that makes can, kind of a mottled, quite a uh, dramatic mottled look, doesn't it? It is, but it's um, unpredictable. So uh, for someone like me who likes to control a lot of pieces of the process, um, ice dyeing is a way that I was just kind of like, well, this is where the dye is going to go and it's going to do what it's going to do because the way the ice melts is unpredictable. And so um, it's definitely an exciting part of the process. Um, I'm doing a lot of tray dyeing for my quilt backs these days. Um, so I always just kind of uh, get a really big piece of fabric and I say like, well, oh, whatever, however it turns out is how it's going to turn out. So um, by tray dyeing, you mean? Um, it's actually going in like a underbed uh, Rubbermaid container. So it's like a big tray. Okay. Um, and I'm using all of the things that I've learned about fabric dyeing and putting the fabric and the dye and the things, the uh, thing that sets the dye to the fabric that creates that chemical reaction um, in that tray and then just kind of being playful with the way that I apply that dye um, because it's going on the back of the quilt and I've learned that it's fun to have a surprise on the back it of is. the quilt too. What a great way to experiment. I like that. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of different processes but um, I think there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of really good books out there on fabric dyeing and when I started dyeing fabric, um, I just, I kind of approached fabric dyeing like I did quilting to begin with. I just wanted to take all of the classes and try all the techniques and see the things that kind of suited me best. And I think I've settled into a few routines now of parts of that process that I really enjoy a lot that I like to incorporate into my work. I love your mindset of exploration and then, you know, to go on with the things that you love and explore deeper, but experiment and um, try, try different ways always makes good sense. Thank I you. know that 
a lot of us talk frequently about how supportive, how welcoming, how warm, how um, generous the quilting community is. But I wonder how you find it just in your creative process. Like, do you feel the need for or find, you know, people that you can bounce ideas off of that have constructive criticism, those sorts of things when you're creating really original works of art? Yeah, I think that the community is a really important part of um, being a quilter, especially for me. Um, Having a critique group is something that is really common um, in certain circles of quilters um, and certainly in the art world. Um, I think that instead of having a formal critique group, I've found that um, I've created a pretty close-knit circle of quilting friends that, I mean, we're always kind of trading images and talking about quilting ideas and talking about color. Um, One of those friends took that dyeing class with me. um, And so, you know, we talk a lot about fabric dyeing. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. there's a friend that I talk a lot more about quilting with um, because we have a similar aesthetic. Um, and even, uh, during the last couple of years, uh, a lot of those people have kept me company. Uh, um, we've, uh, had a lot of many, many, many hours <laughs> sewing together, um, in our studios through our iPads and doing FaceTimes and Zooms and things like that. It's just so helpful to have someone say, even if it's just for me to vocalize, like, I wonder if I did this <laughs> and then, you know, just bounce some ideas off people. So I think that that's really common. Um, I think that my critique group has come in the form of friends that I've built really trusted relationships Mm -hmm. with um, because I don't have a lot of fear to say like, oh, this may be, you know, a silly question. I think a lot of us find ourselves prefacing like this may be a dumb idea. I just don't even worry about that anymore. I just say like, I've been thinking about this. What do you think? <laughs> yeah. you, you described that really well, because it really isn't about a, a formal like accountability group or anything like that. It's just a place where you can bounce ideas. And somehow that process, as you say, vocalizing it, somehow that just sharpens your creative skills. I, I find that too. Yeah, totally agree. I'll also say that um, it definitely created, those conversations created momentum for me. Um during the last couple of years, because I think in posting my work on Instagram and sharing progress and um, having those scheduled routine conversations and dedicated sewing time in the studio was just kind of a way to create a lot of momentum in continuing to um, make and be creative. And I think that that was really important for me, especially in the last two years. Mm-hmm. I think it's been really important to so many people. And it's really interesting to watch as, as you know, in-person classes and trainings and get-togethers are opening up. The dynamic is changing once again, and it will be interesting to see where we go from here in the next year or so. Mm-hmm. I wondered if I could ask you if in your quilting world, and I didn't prep you for this question, so this is off the cuff. <laughs> think of the old-fashioned roses and thorns game what is kind of your favorite in the process of making one of your art quilts and what is maybe a thing that is more difficult for you or something that you want to procrastinate on that's just tougher oh boy um well I think one of my favorite parts of the process is starting a new project um because 
um, there's a lot of thought that goes into the um, digital design process and trying to decide what is this thing going to look like and a lot of experimentation and just as many uh, digital drawings that go in the uh, virtual trash can <laughs> as trash they do can. you know you just have very few that after you create it and you kind of lay things out you think oh I, I really want to make this um, and you know, so I love sending my paper templates to print <laughs> and I'm very eager for them to arrive so that I can just get right to work. Um, and that usually once I've decided on a design, I'm also thinking about, do I want to dye fabric for this? Um, so that's a really exciting moment in development of that project. Um, so I, I love getting new fabric up on the design wall. Um, in terms of my least favorite part, <laughs> I really dislike uh, attaching hanging sleeves. Um, I always, oh, I think we're all with that... you on that one. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, I am like, uh, I'm always so excited when a quilt is accepted into a show. And then I think like, is the facing sewn down? Is the sleeve on? The sleeve's never on. Let's be honest. And the la um, the label and all the, the label. Yeah. And you're usually staying up last... late the night before the mailing deadline. Maybe, maybe that's just me. <laughs> yeah. No, the last, it's getting across the finish line because once the quilt is quilted and I have the facing um, completely on the quilt, then I can take a picture of it and um, then I move on. So I, you know, I take, I take a lot of time. Uh, my husband and I actually built this big rolling wall that rolls in and out of our garage that has um, you can pin into it. And so it's kind of like the last thing that I do is I take that, uh, finished piece and I pin it into the wall and I set up my tripod outside and spend, you know, a few minutes taking some really, uh, good photographs. And then I just, I put it out of my mind. And then you're ready to and start the I'm next ready project, to move right? on to the next thing. And so I really hate putting on a sleeve, but it's part of the process. So well, that's not too bad. I will say I used to really hate the quilting part that I've really um, warmed and to an appreciating quilting as a secondary layer of design in the pieces. So I would say in the last several years, that has been an area of growth for me. And I do think that it's because um, I've gotten more comfortable with my tools that I have, um, and I've gotten more excited about experimenting with quilting, um, and, you know, I have a really good circle that surrounds me and says, how are you going to quilt that? And it makes me excited also. So that's been an area of growth. I, I know you didn't ask about a middle of the road thing, but... That's all right. <laughs> I'm up for stories. That really shows, again, in following through your feed quickly, as I did earlier today, um, that attention to detail really shows. And that is one of the features of your art pieces, for sure. So if our listeners are interested in some of your processes and seeing some of your work, Audrey, where could they find you best? Yeah, I share a lot on Instagram. My handle is at cotton and bourbon. And they can also uh, see my work. And I also um, have patterns and I teach online classes at cottonandbourbon.com. Okay, so your classes, are they primarily uh, piecing, curve piecing, dyeing, the quilting, all of the above? What are they about? Yeah, the classes are um, on foundation paper piecing and curved piecing. 
um, skills that can easily be taught um, over the Zoom platform. All of the classes on the online classes tab of my website are all done via Zoom. Um, and I'm also um, being contacted by guilds and things to do both virtual and in-person teaching. So I really love teaching. It's um, exciting and I love teaching people how to sew curves. Excellent. Well, for those of you who are listening and perhaps driving, I will be sure to put links to all these places in the show notes so that they'll be clickable and you can find them there as well. Thank you. So before we go, do you have a little gem that you'd like to leave with our listeners? It can be about life or about crafting or about any little gem that you'd like to leave with us. Um, I would say if you have a desired skill like fabric dyeing, um, I would encourage you to do some Googling about it and, you know, go for it. Because I bought my first book on fabric dyeing in 2011. And I didn't actually start dyeing fabric until 2020 because it seemed too difficult when I got that first book. And so I wish I would have spent the time to invest in that skill set sooner. Although, I mean, I really appreciate the path that I've taken to learn how to dye fabric and I mean, I had so much fun in the summer of 2020, spending my Saturday and Sunday mornings outside, you know, before it got too hot out and, you know, getting out all my buckets and <laughs> figuring out what color I was going to create that Mad day. scientist a little bit there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I think, you know, I've, in some respects, I wish I would have done that sooner and invested in that skill sooner. Um, but you know, all things happen kind of at the right time, I think. Um, so if you've got something in the back of your mind that like, I've always wanted to do fill in the blank, you know, maybe give yourself the permission space to invest in that um, a little bit and see where it takes you. Because I think that that's been a good learning opportunity for me in my artistic process. Excellent advice for all of us. Well, thank you so much for sharing a little bit of behind the scenes of your work. It has been a pleasure visiting with you, Audrey. Oh, thank you so much for having me. My friends, thank you for tuning into the show. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you consider leaving a rating and a review wherever you listen to find podcasts? And if you have a friend who you think would enjoy these stories too, please take a moment to send them a link. It would mean the world to me. Plus, I'd love to hear from listeners who'd like to nominate a crafter with a story to tell. If you know such a person, or you are one, email me at info at stitchedbysusan.com. So until next time, may your sorrows be patched and your joys be quilted. <laughs>